It's time to run the pass. Today's guest is Chef Uno Imanibong from Dallas. She has a couple of different restaurants. She has uh, Red Sticks with the soon to open Red Sticks. We'll get into that into the podcast. She has an, originally a background in finance, and then she transitioned after uh, being on Anthony Bourdain's show, The Taste, and some advice from him moved her into culinary and opening up some restaurants in Dallas. So we're going to get into all of that in the podcast. Uh, but without further ado, welcome, Uno. Good to see you. I feel like I never get to see you except for social media. I think that's how we uh, stay connected these days. I know you were in Austin not too long ago, and, I, and I'm sorry that I missed you. I hope, uh, hope you had a good time while you were here. We always have such a great experience at Garrison, and we love doing our barbecue tour through Lockhart and um, inevitably end up in Austin so we can have dinner there and, you know, just kind of explore the city. Where was the barbecue tour? Where'd you go? We went to Black's. We went to, um, gosh, there was a place called Lula's. So my boyfriend is a huge barbecue guy. And typically he will go to Lockhart's, pick up barbecue for us, and then bring it home to Dallas. That's how hardcore he is. And so he usually plans the Lockhart tour for us. We were trying to go to Snow's, but heard the line was incredibly long. And same thing with Franklin's. And we've been to Franklin's before, so we didn't make the venture out there. We went to the smaller places. Have you been to La Barbecue? No, I have not. Mostly it's on Cesar Chavez. It's, uh, it used to be the Quickie Picky. I think it's still there. Okay. Um, but it's, that's, uh, that's, that's where I go. Okay. Um, we, had our, we had our R&D kitchen that was just around the corner from us. Um, and we, we used to go there all the time. La Barbecue is maybe probably my favorite place uh, just because it's close to the hotel and I really like what they do. But you have great barbecue in Dallas. Uh, my favorite place is Pecan Lodge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're excellent. Pecan Lodge is great, but they recently have another Blacks here, and it's like the nephews of the Blacks there in Lockhart, and all the sides are amazing. And so um, mm. we go there, too. We kind of flip between the two. So right after Austin, I, I, again, you, you were talking about social media. On your social media, I saw that it looked like you were traveling the world, eating at every Michelin star restaurant <laughs> that exists. What, what were you doing? What was the plan? Was it just vacation or what was going on? That just sounds so bougie. After this <laughs> incredibly challenging year and not traveling for a little bit. You live a bougie life. <laughs> <laughs> just, so, just so you know. From my perspective, I'm, I'm sitting at home eating I mean, three Michelin star restaurants. If someone's got to do it, <laughs> will as well be me. Um, I agree. No, we love traveling first, uh, first and foremost, I guess. Um, my boyfriend has been to like 110 countries. And so for him, it's almost like a... It's like addiction, right? He he gets depressed if he doesn't get to get out, if he doesn't get out of town. And so, this is the first time we've gone out of the country since the pandemic. So it was a year and a half or so. And so we did um, a couple of things. We went to Austin first, and then we went somewhere in between. I, oh, we were in Tahoe. Um, I was there for a meeting and um, did that just to relax a little bit. And then we end up going to Spain and France. And that was because you know. They allow visitors now. And the second thing is um, flights are a little bit cheaper to get into Spain. And we just kind of did a road trip up to um, Bordeaux and Biarritz and Saint-Emilion. So, yeah, we did, a, we did a lot of things in a week. And part of it, yes, is just to get out of town, just get out of, our, get out of my head and his head, too. Because I think this year, more than anything for anybody, it's been 
so challenging. There's, I think there's been bouts of just worry and anxiety that comes with owning your own business. And so just to have that pause, that mental break really helped me a lot um, coming back into town and then um, getting ready to open another location. But I'll tell you that we didn't plan where we were going to go when we got there. We just kind of had a wing and a prayer. So we get there, we drive to four hours up to the Rioja County. We sit in um, El Ciego. And it's at this uh, really amazing hotel called the Hotel Marquis de Riscal. It's um, it's this really unique hotel that's by um, architect named Jerry. And he has titanium on the top of the roof. And so it's in the middle of this wine country, of course. And um, there were a couple of Michelin star restaurants in the hotel itself. And what I love about going to explore different Michelin star restaurants is that there's a way to reinvent food. You know, it's like when I go to Garrison, I feel the same way. You had a papaya salad on there. I was like, ooh, this is this is unique. And um, the ingredients sound right. And it doesn't look exactly like the papaya salad I grew up with. But when you eat it, it's all there. Their flavors are all there. Same thing with going to these restaurants. You know, they take like a spear that looks like an olive and all of a sudden you're tasting like a caprese salad. So how do you take those things and reinvent them in a way that makes sense? Because I feel like in this society, when we talk about social media, right, people are looking for that experience. Everything is about the experience now. Like, what do they remember about it? Could they take photos of it? Um, can they Instagram it? And so taking that and connecting it to what we do. And so, um, yes, I had to eat a lot of food and gain a lot of weight along the way for this. But there's some things I'll take away and say, how can we replate our food and make it different than any other place or have it when we take a picture, people go, oh, that's from Red Sticks or that's something that Chef Uno created because that's her style of cooking. I think that every chef kind of has that as well. And so from there, we went up to St. Emilion. That was one of the best experiences. I've had another wine country. Um, and we stayed at the uh, Pave Hotel and, and ate at a Michelin star restaurant there. And I'll tell you what, that totally blew my mind because number one, yes, it is a mission star experience, but number two, it was about the service and the people that were there. And one of the most memorable things was they took a pigeon out and they made it, um, use the same um, technique as they would do a Peking duck. Ah, and it came out on a, sleeping. Was like, wow, it's a pigeon. <laughs> like yeah. we hate pigeons in the States and we're eating pigeon here. And um, it was the most delicious pigeon I've ever had, if I can say that. And then um, for the tea service, they pushed a cart out. And was, this, had... was this a Ducasse restaurant? No, it was not. It was not. Let me tell you who it was. But they were literally cutting the herbs off and putting it into the pot for us. So Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that at, uh, I mean, it was uh, one, one of the Lan Ducasse's restaurants that they did a similar tea service, that, which I thought was super cool. But, you know, it's like, I'll never do that at the restaurant, but I think there's something to be said about having this tree being pushed out to your table and having that everyone in the restaurant stop and pause and take a look at you. And you take a picture of it. It's, just, it's the experience. When um, actually today I was having this conversation with one of, you know, one of the guys on the team um, there with me, we were talking about, he says, you know, I went out to eat this weekend. It's like, how do I choose a restaurant? Are you super picky? I said, not really, because there's a difference between when I'm eating because I'm hungry and when I'm dining. And when I'm dining, uh, right. I have to be in a different frame of mind because I'm almost putting in as much effort as 
as the people that are preparing the food because I want to look sharp. Uh, I want to be in the right frame of mind. I got to make a reservation. You know, maybe there's a special occasion, uh, but I'm not going to dine to get full. But sometimes when I'm hungry and I'm looking to eat, yeah, I just want to get full and I want to move on to the next thing. So, um, yeah, interesting. Interesting that you ate at some of the, the best restaurants and you're able to bring some of that back. And so I know people can't see this, but this was the menu at the restaurant in El Ciego. All the colors was an entree. Oh, wow. And they described it. We um, we borrowed this menu, but there was 21 courses. Wow. Of small little bites. You don't think you can get full on that, but I promise you they had to roll me out. So for people <laughs> that, that can't see, it looks like a, like a, like a sample of, of different paints that you would pick out from Home Depot or something almost. Exactly. Yeah. All, all binded together at the end. <laughs> well, that's super cool. So um, let's, let's talk about the restaurant that you're opening. So uh, this is what, uh, the second Red Sticks? The second Red Sticks um, that's open. So we did a proof of concept up at Legacy Hall, which is a little food hall. It's 315 square feet that we had to work with. We did so well there. The, the numbers worked out. And so we were able to do a permanent location across from SMU um, Law School. Mm -hmm. and um, great, great location, by the way. Yeah, it's pretty epic. I, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to secure that. And then um, because of the success there, we were able to open in Farmer's Branch. And people always go, why are you going to Farmer's Branch? I really think it's an up-and-coming area. It's kind of a food desert when you think about all the businesses that are around there, and there's not a lot of places to go except in Irving. And so I think we can capture some of that lunch business. Um, but more than anything, I love working with the city and the landlord. Um, they were able to give us a lot of concessions and some development money in order to kind of make ends meet because I, I mean as a business owner and having to raise funds it's really hard to go out there and raise funds for restaurants right now so having some of those subsidies really made it easier to ha have to worry about the financial aspects up front everyone you know lately it seems like all we talk about is you know how everyone's uh pivoting during the pandemic or change, changing changing <laughs> directions i know that's your favorite word uh to pivot but I love what, it. What are you doing uh, in in your business right now to stand out or be different or or to you know to make sure that you're getting your fair share of of customers and resources? Well, I'll say that um, I love the word lucky. I think that I've been very lucky along the way. Is and luck is when you know preparation meets opportunity, and that starts with the experience of every single guest and patron that comes into our restaurant. And so I was lucky enough to meet some decision makers at some hospitals here in Dallas before we went into our lockdown, before, you know, the shelter in place piece of it. And um, the essential workers had to go to work every single day. And I think a lot of people in catering thought, okay, we have a lot of business travelers and we have this lunch business, but people are working from home now. So they lost that business. What I began to focus on was essential workers, hospital workers, nonprofits, and the folks that we had that needed to get uh, meals every single day. And so um, one of the executives in Parkland came in to the restaurant probably a week before it closed down and they had to open up COVID testing and vaccination sites. And there are about five huge sites, mega sites in Dallas, and we were able to cater to all of them. And I will say that I probably did better during the pandemic than most restaurants did because of the catering, because we didn't have any inside business. And I mean, if we were just relying on that, we'd probably only do 500, maybe $1,000 a day in sales. But because we had catering, we were able to not just stay afloat, but 
be profitable. And I know I say profitable a lot because we should all be in business to be profitable. If it doesn't make money, then it doesn't make sense. I mean, why do this, right? Because the stress sometimes isn't worth it. It takes a toll on your health too. But anyway, so going back to that, we were able to do some catering for hospitals. And because of the social media piece of it, and just talking about what I did, a lot of nonprofits approached us and said, hey, can you do this for us? Like the Ronald McDonald House or like the Genesis Women's Shelter or um, the... Um, World Central Kitchen. And so we were able to take some of that business and really, for me, and help me grow as a chef because I had to diversify what I did. Instead of just doing Asian food, I had to do breakfast, pancake and eggs and bacon. I did, you know, shawarma wraps. I did, you know, Indian food because I couldn't serve them breadsticks every single day. I had to figure out how to diversify my offerings as well. I mean, sandwiches, croissants, whichever it is. And so now, Everything kind of goes through me, which is probably the part that's inefficient, but um, going out and pricing it and saying, okay, this is going to be your menu for the six days. And it went from anywhere from 300 meals a day to 1,000 meals a day. And I can tell you that my kitchen is incredibly small, so I had to figure out ways to be super efficient, prepare things in advance. We don't have a walk-in cooler. We had to get there at three o'clock in the morning to prep food in order to get it all out. And these 1,000 meals had to go out before 11 a.m. And then we'd be open for business during the day. And that was really slow. And so that's when we started, you know, all of our arts and crafts. We labeled everything, made sure all the ingredients were on there because they're individually packaged. And so we don't know what allergies people have. And so if you're feeding a thousand people, you list everything on there. So there's no mishaps along the way. But because of that, and we kind of took the extra step as a caterer, um, folks would say, hey, can you do us as well? And at some point we had to turn down some business. I don't like to do that. But at the end of the day, it was it was a good problem to have. And it's really established our place with the organizations that we currently work with. Mm. You, you said something interesting. You said restaurants need to be profitable. And, and I think that's something that a lot of chefs, uh, restaurant owners sometimes lose sight of because we get wrapped up in the romanticism of it. We want to make great food. But the bottom line is, uh, especially you know during this pandemic, we learned that you have to be profitable if you want to keep the doors open. And I know you, I know you have a background in finance. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? And then, you know, I'd like to talk about that and then talk about what made you decide to transition into being a chef, a restaurant owner. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the idea of being profitable is it's easier said than done sometimes because. You know, we talk about, okay, we got to be profitable and how do we do that, right? I don't want to say that we take away from the food or we cut down on labor. You've got to figure out what that balance is. And of course, volume cures all of that. If you have the sales, then you don't have to worry about everything else. But I like to put things in quadrants. You know, 25% is food cost, 25% is labor, 25% is overhead, and 25% should be profit. Um, I can say that We've hit that for the most part last year, but there are some months like these last two months when our catering has gone down because these COVID sites have closed and our and our inside business hasn't grown yet. And so now I'm having to look at it and say, okay, how do we get this 50-50 split instead of 80% catering, 20% walk-in business? And now okay, we're across from SMU. They were kind of not on site and doing virtual training at that point. And so now they're back on and it's building the relationship that's there. But going back to the profitable piece of it, I had to look at products that I could afford and I couldn't make food that I wanted. I wanted to blow their socks off and, you know, and make my own biscuits. But at some point you're like, okay, I've got to get the frozen biscuits because I don't have enough labor because there is a 
labor shortage right now, um, to be able to get biscuits that are pre-made, that are high quality, that are within our budget, um, finding the right sausage that's, you know, good and yet fits in the budget again. And so taking all those things and then looking at the labor piece of it. I think that part of the labor is that I pay people well. I mean, we start at $13 an hour and then you add in tips or anything else on top of that employer taxes, you're essentially netting about $17, $18 an hour, which is really high for a restaurant like ours because it is still essentially a mom and pop. But I had to step in and say, okay, what do I need to do as a manager, as an owner and working some of these hours and covering some of these things because I couldn't afford to have folks there. But the folks that I did have there were really great at what they did. They were fast. They were accurate. Um, you know, they they knew how to cook. I'd rather pay somebody $20, one person $20 an hour than two people minimum wage, if that makes any sense. I mean, as a chef, that probably makes sense to you. So um, I look at that and say, okay, let's pay this person top dollar because first of all, you give them full-time schedule, maybe some overtime. You're going to keep them versus a part-timer that has minimum wage, they're going to find a job that's going to pay them a quarter more. And so I really had to tone in and, and find the right employee as well. And so we were able to work with five or six employees instead of 10 employees because we don't have that much space either. It's it's very strategic. <laughs> that, and, and, you know, honestly, that seems like a no-brainer. Why, why do you think a lot of, I don't know, I, I know a lot of chefs that sometimes, you know, they, they completely skip over learning you know, the, the business savvy part of it. And, and I really, I mean, what, what's your take on it? What, what's wrong with us? Yeah. I just think that, you know, sometimes you get desperate because you're so short and you start hiring people to have a body there, right? And you're like, okay, I see potential. I need to just band-aid this problem. So let's just hire them. And I've made that mistake so many times that at this point, I just want to know that if they don't have experience, I'm okay with it as long as they have heart. You know what I mean? They show up on time. They're ready for the job. I'm more impressed with that than someone that can, you know, prep a case of bell peppers in five minutes. Because at the end of the day, the person that has heart will learn it and will do better because they want to grow or they want to impress you or, you know, they just they just want to make you happy. Um, I think that's what the hospitality industry is about, too. And so, it's it's a delicate line. I mean, right now I don't have any back of the house people for my new location yet. It gives me a little bit of anxiety, but I know that it will all come in due time. Uh, yeah, I want to go back to your finance background. What what caused the switch to go from finance to chefing? Well, How did that happen? Um, I think I'm crazy. I think people will say that I'm crazy. I've had so <laughs> many chefs. <laughs> you met me when I first went to the restaurant business. I think. I would say a good 60% of folks said do not do it, including my mom. I, I, re I remember meeting you when I was the chef at Marquis. You had come in for dinner. You ate in the upstairs restaurant that we had, Toko V. Right. Um, I, think that, I think that was the first time I met you. Yes. I met you before that. I, I apologize. But in my mind, that's that's the first time I met you. You came in with a group. Um, and then shortly after that, you opened up... Uh, um, you know, Chinatown. Yes. Uh, in, in the uh, in the incubator yes. in Dallas, where where everyone was popping up their restaurants, and I remember uh, I remember going and really enjoying my meal back then. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll tell you, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, so thank you for appreciating that. So I was in banking for 16 years, and I always wanted to cook. My mom used to make foods for um, cater, sorry, Laos and Thai weddings. 
since I was like five or six years old. And so in my mind, and they always had two jobs. And so when they weren't home, my sister and I would watch Channel 13 KRA, watch all the cooking shows, pretend like we were chefs on television. Anyway, so when I got into banking, I got into there because it was easy money and it had benefits and paid PTO and all that stuff. And I was good at it. So why wouldn't I continue doing it? But at some point it became really redundant. So I started um, trying out, auditioning for different TV shows, came really close, ended up on a TV show called The Taste with the late Anthony Bourdain. And um, there were about a hundred of us that flew out to LA and 16 of us were chose to be put on different mentors team. And there was four for each mentor. And um, Anthony Bourdain chose me. And I think that that experience changed everything about what I thought was possible, if that makes it broke through the barrier of I can do anything I put my mind to. So after I left the show, I started talking to one of my good friends, Miko Rodriguez, who had me Cucina Taco Diner. And he knew Phil from the incubator in Trinity Groves and introduced me to Phil. And I Phil got me a spot. I had to, to make some food for him, but I think he did it just to say she's not going to make it. Um, she was just a pretty face, and 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 this will be a good experiment for her, and just to show her, you know, how hard this is going to be. But I'll tell you, we, we were one of the last restaurants standing in Trinity Grove, and um, going into Chino, I didn't know what par sheets were. I didn't know what costing was writing a recipe. I mean, I may have done dinners for 20 people, but not 300, 400 covers in a night. And there were days I went home crying. I would work about a hundred hours a week, but I learned the business from the ground up and had to figure out how to standardize a lot of things. And my mind is so analytical from the banking piece of it that I had to figure out quickly. But the great safety net was that Phil paid for everything, right? He paid for the build out. He, if we didn't make ends meet, he'd pay salary and all our bills. And so we didn't have, I didn't have the same challenges that a true restaurateur would have. And that if you didn't have customers come in, you couldn't pay your bills or to, you know, invest your entire life savings. I didn't have that challenge. Although I did take a huge step back in my personal life to sacrifices I had to figure out a budget that way, but I didn't have to worry about that piece of it. Um, so after five years there, I really wanted to spread my wings and do what I loved. And that was food that was nostalgic to my childhood. And that's how Red Stick started. And we started out in 315 square feet and just grew slowly. because I knew that, you know, people always go, oh, I'm going to do like 10 locations in the next two years. And for me, I was like, I don't have that kind of bandwidth. And I just want to see how I can test this once I'm comfortable with my skin here. We'll do the next one and the next one. And um, now we have Chef Uno catering and events, but that's only because of the pandemic that we were able to do that. And I figured out how profitable the catering business is because you make the same food and you box it up and the margins are just so much better with catering than actual dine-in. So um, our farmer's branch location is going to be a hybrid of catering and dining. So with that said, yeah, so I had to figure out how that all worked, taking my business, 16 year business background, and then laying it on top of owning my own business. Uh, I want to ask you about Anthony Bourdain, because, you know, you can't, uh, you know, he's, he's not here anymore. I never had the opportunity to meet him, but you, you mentioned how um, being selected to be one of his mentees and him being the mentor, you know, really pushed you into having the confidence to open up your own place. 
What, what sorts of things did he say to you? Just out of curiosity, what were some of the things that you learned from him? Well, you know, it was it was funny. It's, it's some of the things that he didn't say, right? So when we were doing the competition, he had one that was just offals and it was like intestines and liver and hearts. And he's like, Uno. So I had to make the dish for the competition. But then on the side, I'd make it like the Laotian way of grilling it and making like a good gel some with like, you know, garlic and ginger. And we'd have a Bordeaux with it or something along those along, along those lines. But what it taught me was this. He's like, you know, you're so creative in how you do this. And there's, you know, Laotian food is such a small segment of our market now. And there's a, there's a lot of growth. And I can't say that I know everything about Laotian food, but I do understand like the flavor profiles and how to slowly integrate it in. And um, one of the reasons I did Red Six Asian Street Food, it's, it's, um, it's Pan-Asian, it's Japanese, Chinese, you know, Thai, Laos, Vietnamese all in there um, because I think that the American palate is kind of ready for it, but at the same time, you've got to make it approachable for them. And so what he saw in me was that there was an approachable way that I was able to take these traditional dishes and make them less intimidating for the other judges that were on there. Cause we had Ludo Lafrave on there and he was, you know, he's a French chef and he's like, I don't like this stuff with this accent. Right. And so how could I, Kind of, that was, a, that, that was a good French accent. <laughs> <laughs> How do I make it more palatable? And, um, you know, what I learned from Phil Romano is that 80% of the food you make has to be things that people understand and know because they don't want you to explain it to them. And 20% is your passion project. And slowly but surely, as I'm introducing this food, I'm able to kind of inch more of my food in there and add more fish sauce into things and add more fermented fish and, you know, the things that I love in Laos and Thai food. And so um, slowly but surely, I don't want to have to write a huge narrative about it, but I want him to say, okay, I trust her and I will eat whatever she puts on this menu. And, um, you know, I would love to have a sit down full service restaurant, but I just think that'd be much easier for me personally to be able to step away from the restaurant, to have a fast casual counter service that offers great that offers a great experience. So, hence Red Stick. I'm sure there's a lot of jealous people out there uh, when they think about you know the the time that you have with uh, Anthony Bourdain, especially now that he's not here anymore. Um, but it's really nice to know that uh, you, you know that he 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 moved you from the finance world into the into the restaurant world, and there's a lot of lucky diners. I'll tell you, um, one of the last things he said during our wrap was, um, Uno, if you have a chance to open a restaurant, you should. And I laughed at him. I said, oh, okay, because I look good and poor. And he goes, well, if someone gives you money to do it, then you should do it. And I was like, okay, no one's going to give me money to open a restaurant. And then I came back. I met Phil. He gave me money to do it. And I was like, this is crazy. I just felt like it was the way of the universe pushing me out and saying, you need to do this. And so I did it because I didn't think that it was possible that someone would give me money. <laughs> oh, no, before we wrap up, I, I have one final question. Um, when, when you think about ultimate success to the point where you could say, okay, I've achieved it, I can walk away happy. What does that look like to you? Oh, wow. Um, that means so many different things to me, but I will say that it means that I get to make a little change in the world. And so one of my bucket list items is to be able to open an orphanage in Laos. Um, and the reason is because my parents are from Laos. I was born in a refugee camp 
in Thailand and was run by the United Nations organization. Hence, my name is Uno, the UNO. Um, but when we went back to Laos about three years ago, I saw, saw so many kids there and like they just don't know what they don't know. And it's okay. But I love to for other children in Laos to have the same opportunity that I have. So that's what the definition of success would be for me. Mm, that's 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 super cool and you know really humbling to hear that. Well, it was really nice to see you. It was great to catch up. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you for having I'll, me. I'll make sure I'm in. I'll make sure I'm in Austin next time you're here, and I need to go and see you in Dallas and try the new place. I'll give you more of a heads up next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice to see you. Thanks for catching up. Bye.